make sure to have our Psalter hymnals open to the back. Again, there on page 71, behind the songs. Belgic Confession of Faith, Articles 6 and 7 tonight. So, Articles 6 and 7 bring to a close the rather a lengthy introductory section of the Belgic Confession. And uh, the amount of content, as we've said, the amount of content itself regarding the Word of God should give us a clue as to the uh, confession's understanding of the Word's authority. In other words, when we look to the beginning of the Belgian Confession and find that it takes up uh, so many articles at the beginning of the confession uh, about the Word of God, that speaks volumes to us, that the, uh, the confession has a very high place uh, for the Word of God. And the articles uh, 6 and especially 7 tonight that we'll consider a little more carefully uh, have some of the strongest language defending the wonderful and high and majestic authority of the Word of God. We already confessed together article 7, so I'm just going to read to you article 6 before we uh, read from the Scripture tonight. This is uh, article 6 of the Belgic. This is what we believe. We distinguish the sacred books of the Scripture from the apocryphal books. Those are the third and fourth books of Esdras, the books of Tobit and Judith and Wisdom, Jesus, uh, Syriac, Baruch, the appendix to the book of Esther, the Song of the Three Children in the Furnace, the History of Susanna, of Bel and the Dragon, the Prayer of Manasseh, and the two books of the Maccabees. All of which the church may read and take instruction from so far as they agree with the canonical books, but they are far from having such power and efficacy that we may, from their testimony, confirm any point of faith or of the Christian religion, much less may they be used to detract from the authority of the other, that is, the sacred books. And uh, keeping those articles open, let's turn in the Scripture tonight to Psalm 40. Psalm 40, if you're using the Bibles in the benches, page 878, it's the beginning of that psalm. Now, before I read this, I want us to know why we are reading it. As we have been seeing over the past couple of months on various occasions, uh, the Psalms are not just written by David or by the original human author, author, and not only are they just written in a sense by the Holy Spirit, but the Psalms are uniquely uh, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Psalms serve in a sense as a prophecy of Christ before he comes into the world. And uh, when we come to verses 9 and 10 of Psalm 40, we will see very directly that Christ is speaking in this Psalm uh, to the Father reflecting uh, the truth of uh, what is real in the world to the Father. And I want us to be reminded, and so we consider the Word of God tonight, that we are anointed like Christ to be prophets. And uh, to us, of course, that doesn't mean what it meant to Christ. To Christ, He is the preeminent prophet. He's the one who, in His very uh, person, uh, shows Himself to be God. He reveals God uh, to us perfectly in that way. But we have the privilege being called Christians, being anointed to speak back to God the truth that Christ has revealed about Himself. So when we take up 
all of the language of the psalm, but especially verses 9 and 10, we are speaking the truth. We are able to, to say back to the Lord, yes, your words are true. We are saying them to Him and to each other, and that is our great privilege, sharing in the office of prophet with Christ. And that sets the tone for our a proper acknowledgement of the authority and respect of the Word. And uh, so we'll read Psalm 40 to set that tone tonight. This is God's Word. I waited patiently for the Lord, and He turned to me and He heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and out of the mire, and He set my feet on a rock and He gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God, and many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders that you have done, the things that you planned for us. No one can recount to you. Were I to speak and tell of them, they would be too many to declare. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, Here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, as you know, O Lord. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and of your salvation. I do not conceal your love, and I do not conceal your truth from the great assembly. Do not withhold your mercy from me, O Lord. May your love and your truth always protect me. For troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails within me. Be pleased, O Lord, to save me. O Lord, come quickly to help me. May all who seek to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, Ha ha, be appalled at their own shame. But may all who seek you Rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation always say, The Lord be exalted. Yes, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Oh my God, do not delay. So far the reading of God's holy word. I do not conceal your love and your truth. I do not conceal your truth from the great assembly. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the main thought of Articles 6 and 7 of the Belgian Confession can be summarized this way. The Bible tells us everything that God wants to tell us in order to be saved and in order to live for Him and in His world. This is the basic idea, and it's simple. That the truth of God is evident. The truth of God is in His Word. The Bible tells us, not some things, but the Bible tells us everything that God wants us to know in order to be saved and then in order to go about living our lives in His world and for His glory. And upon closer examination, we find that Articles 6 and 7 unfold this truth by exposing a series of attacks against that idea. They expose these attacks and then they chop them down one by one. Now keep in mind, what are people attacking that the confession needs to rise to defend? People are attacking the idea that the Word of God says everything that God has to say to us about salvation and about the way that we ought to live for Him and His glory in the world. And you'll see 
what we're talking about as we move along here. First of all, and this is going to take us a little bit back to Article 5. We didn't have time to cover it last time, so we'll have to tell it again. But one of the attacks uh, on the Scripture or against the Scripture, challenging the idea that it's everything that God wants uh, to say to us about salvation, about how we ought to live, one of the attacks is that we simply don't have the right books. I mean, somebody may grant us say, our idea of the self-authoritative nature of the Scripture, and this is what we talked about last time, that the church does not decide which Bibles are, in the, are considered to be the Word of God and which ones aren't, right? The Bible either is the Word of God or it isn't. Now, somebody might say, yeah, well, that makes sense, right? If God speaks, then what He speaks is the Word of God. We'll grant you that. It makes sense. However, you, as the church, do not have the right books. You've got other ones. And in fact, the process by which the church in Article 5 say we receive all these books, the process by which the church received all these books was a corrupt process. And therefore, you, as the people of God, can have no confidence that the books which you have in your Bibles are indeed the Word of God. And that's the first attack, obviously, against the Word of God. If we don't even have it, then how can it be everything that God wants us to know to be saved and to live a godly life? And it's, so it's important for us just here and Hopefully we can uh, dispose of these uh, challenges pretty quickly tonight to think about that process of reception that the church uh, went through to recognize the books that were already the Word of God. Remember, we did not decide as a church what was God's Word and what wasn't. We went through a process of receiving from God the books which in and of themselves were already the Word. One of the principles that the church used as it was going through this process of reception and trying to discern which books were the Word of God and where they weren't. They weren't deciding, they were receiving, trying to discern which ones should be received because they were self-authoritative. Right? One of the principles that they used was they thought about how much the documents themselves, the various books that were circulating and claiming to be the Word of God, how much those documents actually were in line with the apostolic preaching that the early church was hearing. Because you've got to remember, when the early church was uh, being formed, and we're reading about this in the book of Acts, they actually had the presence of the apostles with them. And as the generations went on, they would have people who were closely connected with the apostles. Indeed, they had been trained directly by the apostles for the ministry of the Word after the apostles went off of the scene. And these men, proclaiming the apostolic doctrine, or the apostles themselves, their ideas were being circulated in the churches, obviously. And so, this apostolic doctrine and this apostolic tradition, this apostolic preaching and teaching which the people were hearing in the churches would then be a very good and reliable standard by which to test the books that were being raised up to be included in the canon of the Scripture. And not only that, the apostolic preaching and teaching, but they would look back to the whole Old Testament Scripture to find out if what was being proclaimed or what was being put forth as part of the canon aligned itself with the Old Testament Word of God, which was already settled, as we'll see in a few moments. So it was this a cycle of watching to see the books that were coming forward and being presented as coming from the apostles, whether or not those books actually matched up with the preaching that the apostles were giving, or that it was matching up with the preaching of those who had been directly trained by the apostles, or even the Old Testament Scripture and doctrine. And you see, as this a body of the Word of God developed, then you could test the other books against these books now that had been accepted. 
So the church worked from what was obvious and more reliable to then test the things that there may have been questions about, you see. It wasn't an arbitrary process. Another uh, connected principle that the church was using in receiving these canonical books was its apostolicity of the books. That means that the author himself had to be an apostle or have immediate contact with the apostles in order to preserve the historical accuracy of the books, in order to make sure that it hadn't passed through so many generations, say that errors would creep in. The authors had to have immediate contact with the apostles if they were not the apostles themselves. So, for example, Peter wrote books, Paul wrote books, right? But Luke had immediate contact with the apostle Paul. Mark had immediate contact with the apostle Peter. So, apostolicity and tracing that and being able to see that directly knowing that the Spirit had come over the apostles and empowered them to speak His Word was very important in the process of reception. And the church was very strict about that. For example, we see a writing that was published much, much later for our understanding, but this ancient writing was written in the 7th century or the 8th century probably, 600s or 700s, called the Muratorian Fragment. And this was actually a copy of a writing that had come in the late 100s. So... What we discovered is there's a, a writing in 600, 700, 800 in that range that was actually a copy of a document that was written in the late 2nd century. And here is a list of 21 books. It's talking about the process of the church recognizing which books are from God. And it's talking about the principles that are used, you see, to, to try and sort out that question. A very important question. It lists the 21 books, by the way, of the New Testament, there are more in the New Testament, but the 21 New Testament books that at the 2nd century time were recognized by the Roman Church. But one of the books that it rejects, called The Shepherd of Hermas, which is an early Christian writing, it says we reject it because it is too recent. We cannot find a place for it among the prophets whose number is complete or among the apostles. In other words, the church, even in the 2nd century, was saying, all right, listen, it either a book, in order for us to know that it is the Word of God and to have confidence to receive it as the Word of God, we know it has to be among the prophets of the Old Testament, which is complete, so we don't accept it, the shepherd of Hermas, because it doesn't fit that category, and then we don't see any of its connections to the apostles. So the church was exercising this principle and rejecting things that they couldn't have clear confidence belong to the apostles, or of course to the Old Testament Scripture. The church also looked around at the time of the early church and was discovering or trying to discern what the majority of the churches were saying about whether or not particular books were the Word of God. In other words, if you look around in the churches all across the ancient world and you're just in one little corner, you may be able to, to understand more about the origins of particular books, right? Maybe parts of the history or the tradition of where a particular book was written and who wrote it, where it came from, that sort of thing, how reliable it was. Maybe there's more information about that in a, in a city that's across the globe. And so the church was not just in one place deciding, say, which books were in and which weren't out, but they would look among the various churches and asking these questions of apostolicity and the conformity of the apostolic doctrine. They would ask these questions along with the other churches to come to a greater consensus about which books should be received as authoritative. 
And we even do the same thing today. When we say that we have great confidence that these books are the Word of God, we look over the history of the church and especially to many of the early church fathers to see the lists of books that they thought were canonical. The books that they received. Because we wouldn't think, I mean, it would be ridiculous, right, to say, well, yeah, the whole early church rejected all these books and all of a sudden we've come up with ones that should be added. No, we look back to the early fathers and if we find widespread use among the early church fathers, then we are more confidently going to accept it. Even the early church fathers themselves used this principle. Jerome lived in the 5th century, late 4th and 5th century. He looked at the doctrine and he looked at the usage of the book of Hebrews and he didn't know exactly who wrote it, but he accepted that Hebrews was to be included in the Scripture because it was being used by so many of the fathers that were before him. And that the uh, doctrine, of course, was in conformity with the apostolic teaching which was prominent in all of the churches. Uh, So this idea that we don't have the Scriptures that God gave, even if He did inspire them, is simply uh, not true. In fact, if you look more carefully, if this sort of field interests you, if you look more carefully into the reasons that people try and and give for to uh, to cast doubt, say, in the minds of the people of God who received the Scripture, you'll find them all to be uh, logically inconsistent and grasping at straws. You know, talking about, for example, all of these other Gospels, you know, that came into the world at an early time. And if you read those Gospels, they have little or nothing in common with the Gospels that we have today. And not only that, but they read just like a myth and a fantasy. And there are no external testimonies to the truthfulness of these other so-called Gospels and all the fantastic myths and ideas that are put in there. Whereas, of course, if you read our Gospels, if you read the Scriptures, you find a number of of actually anti-Christian confirmations of the truth and the reliability of the facts that are recorded in our Gospels. So it's not difficult to see that the attacks against the Scripture and against our canonical canonical books are exactly that. They're attacks, they subvert the Scripture's authority, and ultimately they try to compromise, in your mind and in my mind, the authority of God's Word. That we do actually have everything that God wants to say to us. We have it. Everything that God wants to say about salvation and about how we ought to live. That's what Article 6 is about, too. There's a different attack that comes from uh, the professing Roman uh, Catholic community. They have a set of books in their Bibles. Maybe you have a Roman Catholic friend who has a Bible and you've opened it uh, with him or her before and you see these books that are listed here in Article 6 as part of their Scripture. Now, to be sure, even the Roman Catholic Church uh, qualifies what they mean by these apocryphal books being from God, but we, in no sense say that they are inspired. I mean, we use a little bit of common sense at least, right? If God speaks, it is the truth of His Word. If He speaks, there are no errors in it. If He speaks, it is inspired and it is our authority and we must be obedient to it. We can't make different categories of God's speech and therefore it is or isn't authoritative to us in different degrees. That's preposterous. Either God speaks and we have to listen to it and conform ourselves to it, or He doesn't. And if you want to say that God speaks in any sense, then we're bound by it. And the Apocrypha then is a challenge, these set of books is a challenge to saying that the Scripture which is from God is sufficient because they need to add these books for whatever reason. Now, as you see in the 
a confession here, and it's not as common, of course, in our churches today. We may use the apocryphal books for some measure of instruction. Perhaps it gives us some historical insight. Maybe we appreciate the uh, poetic expression of some of the truths that, that are real, but uh, there are far from, as the confession says, having power and efficacy to confirm any point of our faith or religion. And uh, certainly you see the tension here, too, from the apocryphal books. There are questionable places, uh, whether or not, you see it in the last line, whether or not they actually uh, conform to the teaching of the canonical books. It's another reason to reject them. And obviously you can't uh, use their uh, perverse doctrine to overthrow the authority of the Word of God. Uh, But why are the reasons, briefly, uh, that we as historic Protestant churches have rejected the Apocrypha as the Word of God. Now, you need to understand, our position is, all right, that this was not a debate until the medieval church began to promote these books. Okay? So, we don't say that this is an argument that has gone on forever. We think this argument is isolated in history. That these books were written and began to get more and more prominence in particular churches, and then... A doctrine developed and developed and came to a a firm idea that these books should be included among the canon. And we have always rejected that and we fully and finally rejected that. We had to fight this issue out uh, in the Reformation time. Now, what do we say are the clear reasons why the Apocrypha does not evidence itself to be uh, the very Word of God? Well, first of all, the Jewish people, The Old Testament Jewish people of God never believed that the apocryphal books were part of the canon of Scripture. Now, think about this for a minute. Think about the confidence that we have as a church in the Bible being the Word of God. Now, imagine, okay, if, say, which isn't going to happen according to God's plan, but imagine that God decided to, say, send a prophet again to speak more words and to be added as a third testament. Right? Imagine that that happened. Now, later on in history, people looking back on that process want to know whether the Old Testament, the New Testament, and this Third Testament are inspired. But then somebody comes along and adds like a a Third and a Half Testament. And somebody starts claiming that there's one between the Second or the Second and a Half, the, the New Testament and this Third one, right? And uh, this one should be considered as inspired also. Well, one of the ways in which the generations in the future would look back to us to see whether or not this makes sense is they would say, well, was there a third one before this new third one that the church accepted all along? And if they listened to our sermons, all they would hear about is the Old and the New Testament. And they may have reason to believe that this prophet came as a third testament, say, But this second and a half one that got invented, they would not accept because the church that was alive supposedly at the time that this second and a half one had been written had never accepted it as the Word of God. The point is this. The Jews, God's people, the church of the Old Testament, did not accept the ones alive at the time of the writing of the Apocrypha, did not accept it as Scripture. So for what reason all of a sudden would we include it now in our canon of Scripture? Jews never believed the apocryphal books were part of the canon. After all, these books weren't even written in Hebrew. This is before Christ came. And the Scriptures of God were written in Hebrew and Aramaic. Why would we accept 
something that's not even written in the language of the Old Testament people of God. But further and even clearer, Jesus and the apostles affirmed the existing Jewish Old Testament as the Scripture. Now, we take this for granted as we read through the Bible. So do our, our Roman Catholic uh, friends. When Jesus says, for example, in John chapter 5, you diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. He's not just using that word Scriptures in a generic sense. The word Scriptures means the Old Testament canon that the Jews had. I mean, they weren't somehow just floating around out in space like we were, and they picked some documents out of there, and they used some sometimes and other ones different times. They're like us. They had a very firm idea about what was God's Word that had to be obeyed, and there were things that were God's Word and that weren't. And when they used the word Scriptures, they meant the Old Testament canon, which did not include the Apocryphal books. The Apostles, the same thing. Acts 18, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. This was a certain body, the Old Testament canon. It's the same one that we have today, and it did not include the Apocrypha. So to set this, this set of writings forth and say that it is the Word of God in some sense is ridiculous. Jesus didn't believe that way, evidently. The apostles didn't believe that way, evidently. Some of the more direct ways in which we can see Jesus not accepting, say, these apocryphal books in Luke 24, He says to the people, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about Me in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Now, why is that important? The Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. The Law of Moses, you'll read it elsewhere, translated the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Writings. We see those three things are the three basic categories of the Old Testament Scripture according to the Hebrew way of ordering the canon. They lumped all of the books of the Old Testament in one of those three categories. The Law of Moses, the Prophets, or the Psalms and the writings. Psalms slash writings. And if a book was not in one of those three categories, it was not thought to be the Scripture. That is the whole scope of Old Testament Scripture. And Jesus has no understanding or no uh, naming of this apocryphal list. It's not the Word of God. One more thing that Jesus says in Luke 11, Therefore this generation, speaking to the Jews, will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. That's very interesting. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Now, why does he choose those two men? Well, Abel, obviously, is the one who is slain way back at the beginning of the world for righteousness' sake, right? And the Scripture speaks of him at different times as his blood speaking, right? His blood giving a testimony of the truth of God and of the righteousness, ultimately, of Christ who was coming into the world. But why does then he choose Zechariah? Well, the Old Testament Christians, the Jewish people in the Old Testament, they arranged the books of the Bible. It's the same ones of the Old Testament that we have 
but they arranged them in a different order than we have today. And the, one of the things that the Old Testament people of God did is they got the book of First and Second Chronicles at the end of their Old Testament. Our Old Testament ends with, I mean, we have all the same books, right? It's the same Bible. But we have uh, all of the minor prophets there listed out at the end or lumped together there at the end. The Hebrew people had First and Second Chronicles at the end of the Scripture, the Old Testament Scripture. And the last prophet that is mentioned, the last prophet that is slain in Second Chronicles, this is Second Chronicles 24, is Zechariah. So when Jesus looks back at the history of the world, and not just the history of the world in general, but specifically, Jesus is thinking about the religious history, the redemptive history, that is going on. The significant history through which God is revealing Christ and prophesying about Him and promising to come, it starts with the blood of Abel and it ends with the blood of Zechariah. If it starts with the blood of Abel and ends with the blood of Zechariah, then the only thing left is for the preeminent prophet Christ to come into the world, which is exactly where the Gospels pick up. There's nothing scriptural about any of the writings in between Zechariah and the true prophet who is coming to shed his blood, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ himself, by ordering history from Abel to Zechariah, shows that there's no room for these apocryphal books. It's ridiculous. Also, no evidence for 400 years in the early church that anyone held these books to be Scripture. I mean, you think at least there might be some straggler here and there who was wrestling with the question of the apocryphal books being uh, given from God. But you just don't find it for 400 years in the early church. The canons of the Synod of Laodicea, 364 A.D., nothing. Melito, Bishop of Sardis, around the year 116 A.D., nothing. All of these people speaking to the canonicity of the Scripture. Epiphanius. And Jerome and Athanasius and others, nothing about the apocryphal books. So we do have the Word of God. And we don't add to it. And we'll have to close with just a couple of, of quick points here about other challenges to the uh, sufficiency of God's Word. Remember... Don't get lost in the details. The main idea of Articles 6 and 7 is that we do have everything that God wants us to know for our salvation and uh, for His instruction in how we ought to live. Uh, notice in Article 7 there, we believe that these Holy Scriptures fully contain the will of God and that whatsoever man ought to believe unto salvation is sufficiently taught in the Bible. That's an important point. That second half, of the first uh, sentence there in Article 7, that whatever man ought to believe unto salvation is taught in the Bible. You don't need any additional tricks or techniques or wisdom than what is found in the Holy Scriptures to be saved. Okay, you don't need some guru to tell you something that is not already evident to you in the Scripture in terms of how to be saved. Paul told Timothy, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, for you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
We are not like the mystery religions where you and me are dependent on some wise man who has transcended normal reality, who has suspended his consciousness to be in, in communication somehow with the wisdom of the universe to figure out how it is to be reconciled with God and how to be relieved from all the distresses ultimately one day at the glorification. How to find yourself to get out of the frustration and the futility of day-by-day life. We don't need a guru. We don't need some secret, strange thing. We need the basic knowledge given to us in the Word. We need true faith, right? We need the basic knowledge to instruct our ignorance so that we know who God is and who we are. We need to know that we've offended Him and violated His laws. We need to know that He sent Christ into the world to take the penalty for our sins to live a perfect life in our place, to rise from the dead and then work in us, saving faith so that we put our faith and trust in Him and are assured of His promises that they're true not only for other people, but for us because He doesn't lie. And also to be assured that someday He will raise us from the dead. You see, that's not all that complicated. It's there for the taking. It's there for our instruction in the Scripture. And it is everything that we need to be saved. You don't need somebody to make you experience that in some way. It's there for you. The Scriptures make us wise unto salvation. Now think about that sentence at the beginning of Article 7.2. We believe that the Holy Scriptures fully contain the will of God. Now think about that for a minute. Do you really believe that the Scriptures tell us everything that God wants us to know about how to live according to His ways in His world? Well, see, the amazing thing about how we understand the Scripture, and really, this has to be true. If God decides to speak, and He only speaks particular things, and He records them for us in writing, and only those things, right, then we know that what He has had to say to us, He has already said. Now, the great thing about this is it frees us from all kinds of tyranny. So that nobody can come to you and say, you must do this, do this, do this in your life if God has not said it. You are free to follow the Lord who has created you and you are free to say, you know what? The confidence that I can have about what God wants for my life is already revealed in the Word and it doesn't go beyond that. Now, this can save us from a couple of different abuses. I mentioned the first one already is from tyrants, right? and from people who want to say things in the name of God that God simply has not said. And you don't have to follow that because the Scripture is sufficient to tell you what the Word of God says. But I'll tell you another thing that it protects us from ourselves. Because how many times do we face a particular decision in our life that is very confusing to us? And perhaps even by God's grace, we have very pure motivations as we face the question. Maybe it's a career decision. Maybe how to handle a particular relationship. Maybe how to go about a certain way. And we have looked at the basic principles in God's Word and we find, say, two different options to be perfectly within all of the things that we've read. And we've even sought out advice from our Christian brothers and sisters, even our parents, those people who have studied the Word of God and experienced the application of the Word of God over their lives. And we go and we wrestle over these things. And there's two options. And we say, oh Lord, teach us your will. And the answer that he gives is, in that case, I've said what I've had to say to you, and the pressure is off. Do what you want to do. Choose whichever. 
because God has already said what you can assuredly say is the will of God for your life, and where He has not spoken, you have freedom. And that's not freedom to sin, right? Because if you're following the principles of His Word, then maybe many options are open to you and you can walk according to the path that you desire. You don't have to beat yourself up that God hasn't told you something about which way to go and I hope He's not upset with me if I go this way. Again, if you're in conformity with the things that He has said. You can run away quickly from tyrants who want to tell you and make all the kinds of decisions in your life about how you should live, who you should marry, what you should be like, etc. If God hasn't revealed it in His Word, then He hasn't told you. Again, assuming that you're being sensitive to the principles that He has revealed. Protects you from tyranny. Protects you even from yourself and beating yourself up where God has not told you to do something or not do something. And last, very quickly, we believe very strongly that the Bible's teaching, the truth of the Scripture, trumps always traditions and the great majority of people or antiquities, successions of times and persons, councils, decrees and statutes. Now look, this is a great challenge in the history of the Christian faith to the Word of God. And we are not immune from it. I mean, just think about the categories there. Look at them on page 72. That the confession warns us not to bring up to the level of the Scripture. Now, it's not saying that we do not consider the things that are written here very seriously. And it is not saying that the conclusions of these things, the teachings that belong to these things, are always bad. I mean, they are good insofar as they conform to the Scripture, right? But what is the human temptation? And what is your temptation?